0: Hello again, everyone. I'm Matt Lachlan. Welcome to the latest edition of Pirates Talk. My guest today is one of the all-time leading scorers in Seton Hall history. Andre Barrett was a member of a highly regarded recruiting class that included Eddie Griffin, Marcus Tony L., and Damian Frey. The Pirates were coming off an appearance in the Sweet 16 in 2000, and this group of freshmen was expected to help push the hall even higher it didn't quite work out that way. Head coach Tommy Amaker left for Michigan following the 2000-2001 season. Then-sophomore Samuel D'Alembert and Griffin left for the NBA following that same year. The Pirates struggled, and the Sweet 16 was but a dream. In fact, the Hall didn't play in the NCAA tournament for three consecutive years. Barrett, Frey, and Tony L. all stayed. Their faith was rewarded when the Hall returned to the big dance and advanced to the second round of the NCAA tournament in their senior seasons. Through all the highs and lows, Barrett was a constant. He topped his career by being named co winner of the Haggerty Award as the best player in the metropolitan area in 2004 and ranks as one of the best in Seton Hall history. And he's my guest on Pirates Talk. And it is indeed a great pleasure on my part to welcome to Pirates Talk Andre Barrett, a member of the Seton Hall Hall of Fame, enshrined in 2013 in the top 10 in scoring in Seton Hall basketball history and one of the great Pirates of recent times. Andre, thank you very much for giving me some of your time today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, it is a blast uh, to be able to speak with someone whose name is is across the record books in Seton Hall history. And we're going to talk a little bit about the past, a little bit about what's keeping you busy, and the many steps that you've made, the road you have traveled uh, once you left Seton Hall playing professionally in so many different stops. Uh, But I I do want to get your thought on uh, your reaction to the time that we're in. Hopefully everything is good with you and your loved ones. And just... Your overview as to what we're all going through in society.
1: Uh, well, you know, to speak on, you know, my family and, and close loved ones and friends, everyone's doing well, uh, staying safe and uh, healthy. Um, and, you know, to speak on the time, this is this is uh, I, I say, like, in social studies, when when I went to class and you hear about World War One and two, and, and all these, you know, historical, you know, moments in, in life, right now this is part of, you know, a historical moment in, in, in life. And, you know, it's a difficult time that I know that we'll all get through. But it's definitely going to be some change. And, you know, we'll find out different ways to, you know, to move forward in this situation, but it's definitely something different and something new.
0: No question about that. It is a very trying time. And I echo your thoughts, though, that we will all get through this. So let's talk a little bit about your time at Seton Hall. Can you believe it? It's been 20 years?
1: Yeah, time, time flew by. I mean, I still remember coming in as a freshman. I actually, you know, still remember the whole recruitment of me, Marcus, Eddie, and Damian Frey, you know, coming together to go to Seton Hall. So, it yeah, has been a long time. And, you know, it's good to look back and reflect on, you know, the career that I had and, and just things that, good moments at Seton Hall.
0: What was it that attracted you to Seton Hall at that time?
1: I think, um, you know, of course, the coaching staff, Tommy Hambica, did a, you know, Tommy Abbott and Freddie Hill did a great job of recruiting me. Um, I felt that Seton Hall, they recently just came from the Sweet 16, so the program was headed in the right direction. Um, former players that was there before me, like Shaheem Holloway, um, you know, you had John Morton. Those guys were from New York. They had success at Seton Hall. So I just felt like, you know, With the class that we had and the players that was already there and Sam Dellenberg, Darius Lang, and those guys, I felt like we can put something together special.
0: Well, it took a while, but eventually things did become special as you went to the NCAA. But speaking of hardships and not to compare what we're going through now with what happened back then, but you had all those expectations coming in as a freshman. It didn't quite work out in terms of the record. And then your coach, Tommy Amaker, winds up taking uh, another job. Uh, Doing some research for this interview, uh, there was a story written by Dave Caldwell in the New York Times, which was written during your senior year. And what he recounted was that you thought about leaving Seton Hall after that first year. How close did that come?
1: Um, It it was a thought. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and lie. uh... I came in to play for Tommy Amica. He went on to uh, make a business decision for his family and himself. And, um, you know, that that opened my eyes up to the business of the game. And for me, you know, I had to look out to see what was best for myself. And, you know, I think by me having an opportunity to go and play for Team USA and the um, world championship games in in China, I think I had the time to clear my mind and not make an emotional decision, but make a much smarter decision on whether I should stay or whether I should, you know, to to go and and see if there's you know a better option for me. And I think by the by the way I played during that that time period, and it was during the summer, I felt as if I could come back. And I was good enough to make the program better. I just needed, you know, players that wanted to play with me. And, you know, I think one thing that my my parents always taught me was never to try to run away from adversity. Um, Sometimes things don't happen the way you expect it. But that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, do the right things to correct it and make it the way you want it to be. So I thought of that. And I felt that, you know, Seton Hall was still in the biggies. We still had some players that was there, you know. The incoming freshmen were were talented, so it was just a matter of just getting things together and and, and being able to compete.
0: And by time you finished your career at Seton Hall, not only were you in the uh, top ten in scoring, but you helped Seton Hall to the NCAA tournament again. As the club finished twenty one and ten, and that included, of course, the first round victory over Arizona before you ran into Duke so it did all work out in the end the story quotes your mother is saying that you're never the kind of kid who wanted to just sit around and you'd have to sit out if you stayed you know if, if you left Seton Hall you'd have to wait a year you're always a guy who kind of had that get up and go and you had to stay busy
1: yeah I mean I think I could have done it but that's not something that I wanted to do I love the game I wanted to play and like I said you know people talk about how good they are. But when you're put in a difficult situation, good players rise out of those situations. So I felt like I was good enough. I felt that the team was good enough. And it was just a matter of me, you know, having a little bit more focus. Like, I think the talent was already there. So I I came in with expectations of everybody just, you know, doing their job and we were going to be a great team. Now when you get a new coach, you get some new players, you get some – returning players that now everybody has to define their role so my job was to come back and be a better leader my job was to come back and 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 pretty much put Seton Hall back on the map where I felt like we belonged at and it wasn't an easy task I wouldn't sit here and say that you know I just came in the gym and and things just worked out it was a lot of you know personal soul searching um trying to figure out you know every teammate trying to you know, have meetings with coaches to figure out what's the best way that we can, you know, get this ship on the right, right path. And I mean, if you want to be good, you got to put the work in. So that's what we did. And we was able to, you know, get back to, you know, the tournament. And I was able to finish off a great career.
0: Where did you get that sense from? Was that instilled by your parents?
1: yeah, it was definitely instilled by my parents. The one thing they always told me was if I make a decision, I got to think about what's the worst that can happen and would I still be happy with that decision. So it was tough to to imagine that, but I had already imagined the fact of my freshman year not working out the way it's supposed to. Now, it was a it wasn't something that I Thought about long, it was something short, but it was also incorporated in my decision. Whereas if if I'm going to choose Seton Hall, and the worst that can happen happens, am I still going to be happy at Seton Hall? So that was something that I thought about in choosing Seton Hall. And you know, you can't you can't predict what happened, but everything that you know we thought about, what's the worst that can happen, kind of happened. And I, you know, I still was happy with my decision of choosing Seton Hall, even though Eddie, Sam had left to the NBA, I still felt like I was good enough to, to, to make it to the NBA with whatever players that I had with me. It was just a matter of getting everybody better and get myself better.
0: Do you think that that attitude still exists today? Because what I hear a lot of is the athlete should choose the school for the reasons that he likes the proximity to home the education the league they play in etc but we do know that athletes go to a school because they make a connection with coaches and you mentioned coach amaker and coach hill and the job that freddie did in recruiting you uh and and so i understand both sides of it but you seem to have said that you know what you chose seton hall for this reason and even though it wasn't what you thought it would be on the court that first year those reasons still existed. Does that, in you, in your mind, does that still resonate with the younger players today? The commitment is to the school, to the program, what it brings, and not necessarily to the coach.
1: Um, I think it's different in this era because the kids are already accustomed to transferring in high school. They play on several different AAU teams. They They're used to being in different environments more than, I think, with us growing up, you were loyal to that one program that you played for. Um, you didn't leave because they brought in extra talent. You just got better or you figured it out. Um, now, guys, if they don't like their situation, they're quick to transfer and it doesn't bother them. Some of them transfer three, four times throughout their high school, you know, career. So when you, when you move forward and you go into college and things don't work out the way you want, you're already accustomed to transferring. So that's why you make the decision because it doesn't it doesn't affect you. You don't worry about you're not worried about sitting out or you're not worried about going to a new team where there's a bunch of new players and it's a new coach and it's a, a restart. Guys are are accustomed to it. So that's the era that we live in. That's the kind of the mentality. But, you know, at some point if you want to be a professional or you want to get to the highest level, one thing you got to realize is you're not going to be able to choose where you want to go. They choose you. They select you. And you're going to have to figure it out. You don't get the opportunity to pick what coach you want to play for. If you want to play in the NBA or if you want to play overseas, you don't get that opportunity. So I think for me, preparing myself for that was something that, It helped me later on in in the future as far as, you know, me playing overseas and playing in, in the NBA because I didn't get an opportunity to choose what NBA team I wanted to play for or what coach fit my style. It was whoever had interest in me and they was willing to give me a deal or, you know, pay me some money that's where I was going and I was going to figure it out when I got there. Hey,
0: it, a different time, but uh, neither good nor bad what happens today. But it is uh, interesting to get your thoughts on what's going on today. So what stands out? What was the best part of your time at Seton Hall?
1: I think the whole process. I mean, you know, coming in with expectations, um, personally feeling like I did we didn't live up to those expectations, but also getting better. And, and seeing the improvement and seeing the work that I put in that, you know, it was something, it was some results behind that. I think that the whole entire process was great because it helped me become a better, a better man. It, be, it helped me become a better player, a better teammate, because I understood the bad times. And when the good times came around, it was like rewarding.
0: Let the good times roll, baby. Certain games stand out. Certain moments stand out that you reflect on and and talk to other people about. Whether former teammates that you might still be in contact with.
1: I mean, I think we talk about just just the fact of of, of the competition in the Big East alone. I mean, a lot of people, you know, enjoy the fact that the Arizona game of us, you know, winning that game. But I just think the whole the whole season every season of playing in the Big East, you're playing against teams like UConn that have seven, eight uh, NBA players on their team. You got, you know, St. John's was always tough. You got Syracuse going out there and getting that experience of playing in the carrier dome. You know, it was so many good teams, Nova, so many good teams in the Big East that you had to bring your A game every day. And for us, you know, to come in certain arenas and and get wins and and sometimes unexpected wins, those were those were gratifying.
0: Who gave you the most trouble from an individual standpoint and who did you really look forward to playing against in your time at Seton Hall?
1: You know what? I, I, I never really looked at anybody in particular because I knew everybody was gunning for me because I would always see in the articles that Coaches would say, if you chop the snake's head off, that the team is not good. So everybody was gunning to try to stop me. So my mindset wasn't really to, I was in competition with anyone else. It was more of, how can I figure out how to win this game? That's all I thought about. It wasn't, you know, points and assists and those things come with playing. But I wasn't going for a targeted number or anything in particular. I just was trying to find ways to win those games. And of course you had guys like Brandon Knight that was tough at Pittsburgh. Um Rutgers was always a tough game. Playing at the rack, that was a that very hard game. Um Syracuse, you know, that zone, it was you know, had, <laughs> had to figure out ways to, to, to score in that zone. It was a it was a difficult you know zone that they played different from other teams um you had uconn that was star studded with a bunch of plays that were good so me in particular i wasn't really gearing for the one-on-one matchup and and seeing who gave me trouble My my whole thing was if i had 10 points and we won i was happy because i knew how hard it was just to win in the big east
0: It was indeed. It still is obviously hard to win in the Big East. And, you know, some of your comments remind me of uh, what I've seen in The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, where it's all about the winning. I mean, he was. (laughs) I had the pleasure of covering a couple of his years when I covered the NBA. And my goodness, did I respect what he brought to the table every night. Mm -hmm. But to see this documentary and for others to get to understand like the drive, man, have you seen any of it?
1: Yeah, I watched the whole entire, from episode one to 10.
0: What'd you think about it?
1: I think it was amazing because you really get in the mind of greatness. Like, this documentary allows you to see how hard it is to be a great player, but then what it takes to be a great player and the mentality and more than anything. Like, things that, you know, motivated him, that's not normal. And in order to be great, you don't you, you can't be normal. You can't be like everyone else. And there's gonna be people that's not gonna like you, there's people that's gonna like you. But at the end of the day, the results, people are gonna have to respect you. And I think that's one thing that I left with the respect of Michael Jordan. You you watch the games and you see, you know, the highlights, the the buzzer beaters and, and the, the amount of points he had, but that took a mindset. It just it just wasn't Something he just stepped on the court and it just happened, and you can hear things that triggered him that made him you know mentally take his focus to a whole nother level and While doing that, the man won games so and that was the objective. It wasn't just to get his numbers and lose his objective was to do both to to play at the highest highest level of any player in the nBA and to win. And that's a tough act to follow. Some guys can only do one side. They can play at a high level, but can't win. Or maybe win, but don't play at that high of a level. To be able to do both makes you great.
0: Incredible. Uh, Well said on your part. And some of the things that you said about how you approached the game kind of resonated with me in light of what Jordan has said. Uh, Listen, I I understand the level he's at, but you were at a very high level too. There's no question about it. And you had a face the best every night and as you mentioned earlier they were saying hey cut the head of the snake off and the body will go and you were the guy leading the way as the point guard so you know you had to have some of those similar attributes too in order to lead Seton Hall back to the prominence that it once had just before you got there going to the Sweet 16 the year before you got there but then you led them Mm -hmm. back to the NCAA so you had to do a lot of those same things and have those same kind of mindsets uh as as a jordan did but boy it it was fun to watch that series it's just fantastic hey a couple of things before we get to what you're doing now uh you you mentioned you played at high school you played at rice high school one of the storied programs in new york city and you were there the whole time you didn't move around for a better offer things like that but you wore 12 there correct Correct. And so now you come to Seton Hall and Seton Hall has retired that number 12, Richie Regan, uh, the former Pirate great, the late Richie Regan, who played there at Seton Hall, played in the NBA, came back as the athletic director, was involved as the leader of Pirate Blue, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, His mark in Seton Hall history is, is well known. So how did it come about? Like he allowed you to wear number 12, and then you gave it back uh, to him, so to speak, when you graduated. <laughs> how did that whole conversation go, and uh, how did it come up?
1: Well, well, I wasn't too uh, educated on the history of Seton Hall, honestly. And when Tommy and, and Coach Hill was recruiting me, um, they had mentioned – that richie reagan had found out that they was recruiting me and he liked my game before i even stepped on campus he watched me in high school and one day tommy had got on the phone with me and he was there and he said that it would be an honor for me to wear his number and i'm sitting there like i had to do my research on you know on, on Obviously, if your number's retired, you must be somebody that's important in the history of the school. So then when I started to realize, you know, what he has done for Seton Hall, I'm like, this guy is Mr. Seton Hall. Like, how, like, why me, you know, take down your number? I knew it was going to be a lot of pressure and, and a lot of responsibilities of me taking down someone's number and actually wearing it. It was going to draw a lot of attention. And I really honestly didn't want that. I wanted to you know probably come in with my own number, whatever it is, figure it out, and you know put my own stamp on you know the school as far as with my number, but he you know he kinda was on me about really wearing that number because it meant something to him for me to wear it, and you know what? I was happy that i that I took that number and and was able to wear it because. By my sophomore year, I think he had passed away. And now it wasn't only about me. It was about him. It was about his family. It was about his legacy. It was about still carrying that on through my play on the court. So I felt like we both shared it when he passed away. And he was still a part of my journey. So that's why I took his family you know, especially in a trying time like that and, and, you know, dealing with, you know, losing someone like that, his family was along the journey with, me, which was, you know, great for them. It was great for me. It was great for my family because it was like a way of honoring him while I'm playing. I don't have to honor him after I'm playing. I'm going to do it while I'm playing. And once I graduated, the best thing for me and for the. I felt like my family felt like was to give the number back to the family and make it, you know, senior night is normally about the seniors, but I felt like he was a part of, you know, my four years at Seton Hall. So I wanted to honor him by, you know, giving that number back to him, the number that he allowed me to wear. Now it was my time to be able to give that back to his family and to um, basically show my appreciation.
0: That is a wonderful story, both how Richie approached you and how much you understood what he meant to the hall. And uh, in that trying moment, uh, giving the number back and, and helping the family through that tragedy, having lost Richie only a short, t- short time earlier. Uh, it's a great Seton Hall story. It's a great Andre Barrett story. And it's a great Richie Regan story. So thank you very much for sharing that uh, with our audience. So what are you doing now? What keeps you busy these days?
1: now i am working at the nba and league office um youth basketball program manager so dealing with you know all of the youth basketball from junior nba to elite basketball with you know all the top high school plays in the country working with usa basketball as far as you know just being a mentor for most of those kids and you know sh- shed my experiences um Trying to do a little bit of everything, honestly. Working with uh, NBA Combine, uh, just just doing a lot in, in in youth basketball. Before, with all the kids that have an opportunity to go to the NBA, and right before they get to the NBA.
0: Sounds like it's very rewarding. What are the challenges, and and how's it going for you?
1: Um, I think it's... it. it it's, it's very rewarding. It, it's 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 opportunity for me to give back through my experiences as well as learn the business side of of you know the NBA and and you know being able to scout these kids and, and get an understanding of the new era of kids and the style of play and how they fit into the NBA and and also you know my goal and and objective is at some point being in the front office and and being able to show, you know, what I've learned at the NBA league office.
0: Well, you can join a fellow pirate who's now sitting in the it's not officially the GM's role, he's got a different title but in Chicago now after moving over from Denver. So, uh the pirate legacy rolls on. Uh you and Arturus Kurnichevis uh can share something similar if you if you achieve that goal of front office uh, position so we wish you the best of luck in that thank you um there's a johnny cash song called i've been everywhere i don't know if you're familiar with it but uh, i'll I'll read you some of the lyrics i've been to reno chicago fargo minnesota buffalo toronto winslow sarasota wichita tulsa ottawa oklahoma on and on it goes it's a good song uh Mm -hmm. you've had a path like that In your playing days, Uh, you did play in the NBA, uh, so kudos on that. Uh, Houston, Orlando, Phoenix, Toronto, Chicago, and the L.A. Clippers. But then in the D League, Bakersfield, Austin, I'm going to skip some teams, Idaho, Maine, Sioux Falls. You played overseas in Venezuela and Spain and the Dominican Republic and Argentina. You've been everywhere in basketball, too, haven't you? Yeah,
1: I've been everywhere, and I think, it. honestly, I look at it as a blessing. For many reasons. One, get an opportunity to meet so many different people in the game of basketball, have so many different teammates, meet different front offices, meet people that, you know, have some input to the game of basketball, whether it be coaches, different coaches, different general managers, you know, different scouts. And and it's crazy to see, like, these guys progressing and, and move up as far as their titles within the game of basketball. And also I think it it was good in the sense of by playing for so many teams in different places, people always wanted me. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? So if it didn't work, if if I was here, like like people look at sometimes as a negative, as being a journeyman in the NBA, but guess what? I know people that only get one opportunity, so that means that only one team liked them. For me, I played for six different teams. So, what is it, thirty teams in the NBA? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of teams that liked me. They, they, they. You know, they liked me and, and wanted. They felt like I was good enough to get that opportunity. Now, once you get to the NBA, it's all about you know timing and and being at the right place at the right time. But people felt like I was good enough to be in the NBA. People felt I was good enough to play at a high level overseas, so you know for me that that felt good because I know other people that are in situations that they might have got one chance and people just felt like they wasn't good enough and that's hard that's something hard to deal with when you personally as a player, you definitely feel like you're good enough because if you don't have the confidence, you wouldn't be where you're at, but when the people stop knocking on your door. That's something hard to deal with. And I never had to deal with that. I mean, even when I decided to, you know, stop playing and work in the NBA office, I still had teams still calling me, trying to see if I still wanted to play. So, you know, for me, that that speaks, you know, high volumes on, you know, the player that I was, the value that I brought to teams, and, you know, how much hard work I put into the game that, you know, people was willing to reward me.
0: hundred percent. And I meant it with all respect for what you've been able to accomplish in your career, because I say this all the time. Think about when the day you were born and then maybe the first time you picked up a basketball. So let's say it was five or six and you played on some local team. And do you know how many kids across the world were playing basketball at the same time who were your age? And you kept going you kept mm-hmm. playing. You never stopped. You played at the highest level. It's an incredible accomplishment. I don't get it when people don't look at something like uh well, it was the D League, now the G League, or playing overseas. Are you kidding me? Do you know how many people are below you on the pyramid if you can still yeah. play? So I meant it with the highest but- level of respect.
1: No, no, no. I know you did. But I'm just saying, like, for me, that's how I look at other people. You might look at it in a different way. And I'm not saying you in particular. I'm just saying to the audience in general, you might look at it different. Like for me, I I always look at now I can I'm able to reflect on everything. And now I look at it as when I first started playing basketball was recreational, where everyone played. It didn't matter how good you were. You you just played. You, You played basketball for the fun of it. And now your next step is trying to play high school basketball. Now I've seen a lot of people that I played recreational basketball with at, at a, at a young age that they didn't get a chance to make it to high school basketball. Uh, It gets smaller. Mm -hmm. And then, and I was able to to make it at high school basketball and be an elite player. Then you go from high school basketball, not too many people get a chance to play college basketball, whether it's division one, division two, they stop playing and they go to school, maybe go to school just to go to school and not play. So I had an opportunity to get a scholarship full scholarship to play so at that point, as far as in basketball, i won <laughs> I won <laughs> because <laughs> around my neighborhood, it might be about. I can say a few people that actually had a college scholarship. So for me to be able to have a scholarship, and I'm one of the elite players in college basketball, on television, like, that that's kind of icing on the cake. Then after that, to have a 14-year professional career, that's like, man, like, What else can you, you know, what more can you ask for? (laughs) Nothing, right? Exactly. And and it's crazy how, you know, a lot of people that that you you realize that I played basketball with a lot of people I played against, I played with, and for me to be one of those people that to continue to keep rising and you see others that at certain ages, they stop playing, they don't play anymore or they don't do, they don't they don't play basketball. They, they're figuring something else out in life. I was able to be able to do that later on in my, in my, in my, in my career, not early. So, you know, I, I felt like I was blessed. Uh, It wasn't easy, a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication, a lot of sacrifice and, you know, the support of my family and friends that, that, that's what made this happen.
0: And it's still going as you pursue uh, an executive role in the NBA. Uh, the time has gone by quickly. It's a little longer than I thought it would take, and I apologize uh, if, no, if no I problem. took more time. Uh, but the stories have been intriguing, and uh, the uh, stories that you share I know have resonated with our listening audience. So, Andre Barrett, thank you so very much for your time. Best of luck with what you do. You have a lasting place in Seton Hall history, and it's been my pleasure to spend some time with you and speak with you today. Thank you so much again.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: And that will wrap things up on Pirates Talk. It was such a pleasure to hear from Andre Barrett, a basketball lifer and Seton Hall Hall of Famer. If you like what you heard today and haven't yet done so, I invite you to become a subscriber to Pirates Talk. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, on iHeart, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And please tell your friends about the show. Special thanks to Pat Christensen, our esteemed audio engineer, for his work on Pirates Talk and for being the writer and performer of the Pirates Talk theme. Thank you for your company today. Until next time, be safe, stay well, and let's go Pirates!